I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Hey, welcome to No End in Sight. This is your associate producer, Drew Marr. Before we get started, we wanted to remind you that No End in Sight has a new newsletter. It's full of updates about Twitter conversations happening in our hashtag NEIS void book and article recommendations about chronic illness and disability, and links to new podcast episodes and miscellaneous other media. If you are comfortably able to support our work, there are paid options available, but all core content will be free. You can take a look at previous newsletters and subscribe over at noendinsight.substack.com. Today, we'll be hearing from Emily Cease about brain cancer, misdiagnosis, and finding community outside of neat diagnostic categories. One content note for this episode, Emily and Brianne start talking about COVID and lockdown at around minute 50, and that line of conversation continues for about 10 minutes. Before we start, here's our disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. Okay, perfect. So then I like to start just by asking people, how was your health as a kid? Yeah, so I feel like as a kid, I was pretty healthy and normal. Looking back, you know, I I was reading your, the transcript for your first Mm -hmm. episode, you know, and that that whole retrospect, you know, look back at everything. I think, oh, well, that could have been a thing, (laughs) you know, but as far as doctors and my parents and I was concerned, I felt like I was a pretty healthy kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, I mean, of course, for lots of people, because people get sick in all kinds of ways, like makes complete sense. So for you, was there a single moment when things started to change or did they change kind of gradually at first? It was, yeah, like there's a defining moment for me around 2014 when I, we had this brutally cold and snowy winter here. And I was just tweeting about this actually. And I fell and slipped on the ice and hit my head. I was unconscious for a couple of minutes or seconds out there. It wasn't long. Yeah. Um, Lost consciousness. Yeah. And so I always attributed that to just, it was like cold and snowy, but you know, now I have a brain tumor. It affects my balance. Now that I look back at that, even I question, well, would I have lost my balance totally if this hadn't been inside my head, (laughs) you know? So I don't know, but after that point, to get back to your question, after that point, I felt like um, things just weren't right with me, you know, at any point after that. And were you and, thinking of it as a concussion at that time, like a TBI or some kind of a head injury, or were you even thinking about it in that way at all? I, no, at that point, no, I wasn't because after the fall, it was a couple of days later, I went into the doctor cause I still was feeling kind of weird, you know, and I thought, well, I better get it checked out. So I had a CT scan and there was no swelling or whatever. So, I mean, yeah, I'm sure I was concussed, but there was nothing that was alarming to anybody at that point. 
And then for several months after that, it was just the fatigue hit me. Like I had never known fatigue before prior to getting what I call sick. Prior to that, you know, I used to run 5Ks and not because I enjoyed exercise, but I kind of enjoyed punishing myself, you know, like seeing what I could do and um, what I could, what limits I could stretch and whatever. So I was in relatively decent shape before that. So when I started feeling this, and I was like 30... 34 at the time, when I started feeling this decline, the first thing that entered my mind was, well, you're just not being active enough, you know, and so I kept pushing, and I kept pushing, and it kept getting worse, you know, and so like, that was the clue to me as just like, know your own body and understand what's happening. That was the clue to me that something was really wrong. And so, and at that point, it was mostly fatigue. Were you, I know it's so hard because obviously in retrospect, again, you have like different vocabulary, but yeah, but yeah, were you thinking of it as like, I'm really tired, I'm sick, like something's going on if I, exercise isn't helping because it's always helped before or kind of, were you in that space? I was in a space where I was blaming myself a lot yeah. because we lived, we were in a tiny apartment at that time. We had just moved to where I live now. and But at the time, we were in this transition. I had started a new job, and I thought, you know, I'm stressing out. I'm not taking care of myself. I'm not, I put it all on myself. You know, I put everything that was going wrong, I felt like I was doing something to make it happen to me. Yeah, it was all like a self-care deficit and nothing else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that was, you said, and this is like four to six years ago? How does math work? Yeah, about six years ago. So 2014, it was about six years ago. Yeah. It was like October. Actually, back up. (laughs) There's there's probably going to be a lot of me doing that while we talk. But in the months between, let's say, like the summer of 2014 up to October, I had gone to a couple of doctor's visits, you know, just primary care. Like, I'm so tired. I don't know what's wrong. You know, there there was a point where I was like, okay, I'm not doing this to myself. Yeah. Well, like what's going happening. on? Yeah. So I had the fatigue. And then that's about the time that just widespread pain hit me, like everywhere. Shoulders, neck. I mean, you, there was not a point on my body that you could touch that it didn't, like, ouch, painful hurt, you know, not just discomfort, but it, it hurt. And so I went to talk about that. Pain, I mean, I know a lot of people that listen to this pain is not received well as a symptom by doctors. So that was, that was kind of thrown out the window. (laughs) You know, I don't, I don't blame that doctor specifically for, for that, but it was just, and I was part of part of the dismissal myself too because I just people don't hurt that long right pain is an acute symptom if we're taught this like from childhood that will go away if you just give it time well it never did and and she she didn't really have anything like to offer me 
you right. know, my, my blood pressure was doing weird things, but not consistently, mm-hmm. you know, I would go in one time and it would be like, well, that's kind of high. Or do you usually run high? And up until that point, no, I'd always been a little bit low, like my blood pressure had been really good. Mm-hmm. So then I started like, well, I'm in pain. Of course, my blood pressure is going to be up, you know? Yeah, like maybe um, it's the same situation. Yeah. And there was just so many things. Eventually, I went to a nurse practitioner because I couldn't get into my primary care physician. And she's like, oh, well, you're 30. I have all these clients with fibromyalgia and... You know, we're going to run some tests so we can rule out some other stuff. And they did a handful of things. You know, my blood work didn't show anything. Right. And then I got referred to a rheumatologist who was like, oh, yeah, you're 30, you're overweight, and you're, you've absolutely got fibro. There's, you know what I mean? The blood work doesn't show anything. So that's, that's what you have. And that's and a I real will... classic Fibros diagnosed too early by so many people. Like, yeah, yeah. No. It was, and I I didn't know any better at the time, right, you no. know, but that doctor was a horrible doctor. I, he was one that I ended up contacting the board about how bad he was, and he no longer practices in this city. I mean, he, I was not the first person, yeah. you know, to complain about him. Anyway, he like I had other symptoms where he would even say, well, you've got some kind of weird autoimmune thing going on that I don't really understand. <laughs> you know, he would admit that, but he would not look any further at yeah. anything. So it was three years of me just off and on going back to different doctors for, you know, maybe for a week, I'd be like, okay, I have fibro, I need to accept this, you know, and then something weird would happen, I'd be like, no, this is not fibro. And were you, I I mean, I know that there was kind of not that many treatments available, but were you trying a medication or had you, mm -hmm. you, that was a yes. (laughs) Yeah. Interventions at that time. He immediately put me on Cymbalta or Duloxetine, which is the antidepressant. It, it didn't really do anything for me. It made me feel really weird. And then finally, I just decided this, you know, this is not helping. There's no reason to keep filling this prescription. Yeah. So I stopped. Meanwhile, looking for another doctor to help me figure out what was wrong, mm-hmm. you know, but that, I mean, they did at least try something, but it didn't. No, it didn't work. And it's like, just as my own, like, what's so frustrating about it is how typical it's like, those are the first pathways. And Mm -hmm. like, not that they're always wrong. Sometimes they're right. But like, most doctors are overestimating how often they're correctly identifying fibro and depression specifically. Right. It's not as common as you think it is. There are other explanations a lot of the time. Yeah, that's 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 another thing. I was simultaneously diagnosed for the first time with a depressive disorder mm-hmm. when I had the fibro diagnosis by that doctor. Mm-hmm. So he gave me two diagnoses. We never really talked about the depression, but it was on my chart, well, <laughs> you know? And so I was like, okay, that's kind of weird. But, yeah. but after that was, it feels like it was an eternity, but it was a couple of years of me just going back and forth with different doctors, being referred to specialists and back and forth and back and forth. And and were you 
had you been working or were you working at this time? I was working. So I worked all the way up until the point they found the brain tumor. Okay. So you were definitely Because um, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. It's a, I will say there was a point where it got so bad that I took, I took paid leave mm-hmm. for as long as I could and then just stopped working for like a month on FMLA. Right. Because I was, I couldn't do anything. I right. was just so like, I'll take run down, stressed. Yeah, out. exactly. Quotes, listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know where I am in my story. <laughs> I, this happens to me a lot. I just that's, get. That's okay. That's so normal. So <laughs> okay. you were saying you were, because I interrupted you to ask if you'd been working. So you were working, you had been diagnosed yeah. with fibro and also depression. And then you tried, I think you said some Malta. And eventually you gave mm-hmm. up on the medication. Basically, you were like, this right. isn't making sense. Yeah. So during this time, too, I did a whole lot of Googling because nobody was helping me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And yep. I, we all, I mean, I watched the NEIS void stuff. I mean, everybody who has ever encountered chronic illness has come across this. Yeah. You know, like wall of we're not going to help you, but also we're going to degrade you if you go searching for any information. Yeah. You don't know what to that tell was... you. Don't try to find it out yourself. Like, right. Mm-hmm. Just pretend exactly. it's not happening. That's the advice we have for you today. Yeah. And it was really frustrating. And I, I have a lot of medical trauma and I'm you know I'm not over exaggerating but a lot of trauma and a lot of baggage that I carry around with me to this day even with a diagnosis and Mm -hmm. a serious one that people take seriously you know I still carry that with me I mean that's it was it was really hard to go through that for in just a couple of years and I know there are people out there like decades Mm -hmm. you know with no and I just can't, <laughs> I can't not empathize with everybody who, yeah, who has experienced something like that because it really is hard. It's hard to deal with. Yeah, it's so, it's so disorienting when it's like my body isn't working the way that I expect it to, and this system that's supposed to help me isn't working the way that it's supposed to. Like, there's just failures in multiple directions. And then often the people around you aren't aware of how either of those other things are failing because they can't see it. So they're just kind of yeah. like, okay, sure, whatever you say. And you're like, can't you see everything crumbling around me? Exactly. They're like, no, but I believe yeah. you. You're like, do you? Yeah. yeah, well, and some of them just outright didn't believe me. I mean, right. you could tell. There was there was one nurse practitioner in particular who was I don't know she was just not very helpful to me Mm -hmm. you know and she I don't feel like I ever did anything to to ruin that relationship myself maybe I said something that just set her off at the beginning and I wasn't aware but there was one point where I was struggling with all of this and I I remember saying to her you know well what if what I have is seronegative because someone had said they had rheumatoid arthritis that did not show up in blood work. And when I said seronegative, she laughed at me. Yeah. Like I was too big for my britches using right. such a big word. And she wasn't even a doctor. She was just a nurse practitioner dealing with me. 
And like that really hurt, <laughs> you know, I carried that with me and never went back to see her again, that kind of thing. So by the time I finally, by the time I finally was like, I'm bringing my husband in, God, I hated bringing my husband into the doctor's office. I should not have to do this. You know, yeah. it's not that I minded him being there. It's that I shouldn't have to need him <laughs> in right. order for people to take me seriously. Yeah. It's like but, there's two stories there. It's nice to have someone for like emotional and memory support. And also mm -hmm. it shouldn't be necessary to have like a cis white man in the room to be taken right. seriously. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, he, I had this episode where the two of us were in Walgreens getting stuff and I was just like, I got so tired. I didn't think I could leave the store. I got out to the car and when I went to go and sit in the passenger seat, like one of my legs, I was just, it was so just laying there like heavy. I couldn't lift it. And that's when I told the doctor, my primary physician, who was a new one now that I, I had switched. And she was like, oh, well, that's not part of fibro. <laughs> I was like, well, duh, this is one of, I'm sorry, that was a, duh, was one that I was not supposed to say. You're like, but so I, I was, I'm not surprised to hear that because I've been telling you for ages that most of these things were not fibro things. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of that stuff, it just got ignored. It either got ignored or explained away as, oh, well, sometimes fibro is just weird and everybody is experiencing a different kind of fibro. <laughs> yeah, everyone is experiencing a different exactly. kind of fibro because those people are misdiagnosed. <laughs> right. Christ. Right. So when I told her that, she actually did, and my husband was there in the room and, you know, the doctor kind of said under her breath while I was walking down the hallway so she could analyze my gait. My husband said, you know, this isn't fibro. She said, yeah, this isn't fibro. So we went back into the exam room and she did like a physical exam where she actually like had me take my shoes off and then did this with my feet. And then they were like, it's called clonus. Mm -hmm. And they just, there's like a, a nerve impulse or something that make, and she's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> something you know, and, something observable. Yeah. yeah. And so at that point, I said to her, and this was after I had been researching, I was convinced that I had MS mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. I was just, there were so many things that matched up. And, oh, and I used the, I don't know if you're aware of the Isabella symptom checker. Symptom checker? I don't think I am. Okay, well, it was, I can't remember if it was an app I put on my phone. It might have been both or just something online, but mm -hmm. you plug in all your symptoms, right? And it throws this crap back at you, which is like not something I recommend unless you are at your wit's end because yeah. it said MS and it said brain tumor when right. I put my stuff in. Yeah. So, I mean, I was freaked out, but trying to tell myself not to be freaked out, you know. Yeah. And I knew clonus was a symptom. I didn't know I had it because it was something that somebody had to actually physically manipulate my body in a way right. to figure it out that I would never, I don't think I even could do it if I, right. if I wanted to. Yeah. And it's not something so you find I, out by accident. Yeah. Yeah. So I told her at that point, you know, can we rule out MS? And then she was on board with doing that, you know, and ordered an MRI like right away 
or as soon as possible within the healthcare system. Right. <laughs> but at that point, yeah. I actually had to, there's a hospital here where I live, but I couldn't get in for a couple of months there. So she's like, well, would you and your husband be willing to drive like an hour away to go mm-hmm. to this mobile MRI set up by our healthcare system? And I was like, sure. So I did that the day the day I had the MRI, like that evening, I had missed like five or six phone calls. They were trying to get a hold of me so fast, you know, and I was like, oh, something's up, you know. Yeah. At that point, I knew not what it was, but that there was something going on. There's a level of urgency. And how, yeah. and, and how many years into kind of actively searching was this again? So 2014, and it was... January of 2017 so it was like two and a half years okay. of me to the MRI trying to find out yeah. I would say what was wrong where at that point where all of that had been bad enough that I knew something was wrong yeah because you know there we asked the doctor when I was diagnosed you know well how long do you think this brain tumor has been inside my head because mm-hmm. And it's like, well, we don't know. <laughs> we have no way of knowing. It could have been there for years and only recently come to a point where you physically noticed, you know, what it was doing to your body. Right. Anyway, <laughs> back to the the primary so physician yeah. conversation. Yeah. After they finally reached me, they're like, okay, you have to come in tomorrow. Yeah. And so I did that, you know, they didn't tell me anything over the phone because standard practice, they don't want you like flipping out. That must've been a difficult night though. Especially as like a lot of standard labs are available, which Mm -hmm. it like makes it more something. I'm like, why? Yeah. 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 So she told me that my husband was there with me and I had to be wheeled in that day because I, you know, I, I could walk, I could get myself out of the car, but I was, I was just so exhausted like and my, my like physical ability had declined to a point where it was just like, even I have to go hundred or 200 feet, I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. So he wheeled me in and, you know, she told me that I had a brain tumor and went over what she knew about it and what she was going to do for me to get me in touch with whatever. And as, as Dan and I were wheeling out to the waiting room, so we didn't have to sit in that enclosed space while they were trying to get everything sorted, you know, I just laughed while he was wheeling me down the hallway. And I said, I told them I was sick. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, it was such a weird and surreal moment for me because I was happy that this woman just told me I had a brain tumor. Yeah. And that is bizarre. And I still, I've had a little bit of like that grieving process over being given a diagnosis that like, whoa. Yeah. And like, but I still haven't been scared of your whole life, right? Like that's been specifically named as like a scary thing. Like a boogeyman medically. Yeah. And I, and I still haven't like totally been able to just like outright grieve like I hear other people say they did, you know, it's just this long ongoing process because I'm still so happy to know what it is to be able to name it, Mm -hmm. um, that I feel this sense of relief 
and at the same time, it's conflicting with all of this, like, oh, my God, it's cancer. And it's not just ca- – it's brain cancer, you know. That is, is supposed to be terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> you scary know? combination like, of words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, understandably so. Yeah. And so but, at the beginning, were you – so – you had seen your, you had been told by your PCP and then got referred to like a neurotype person. I don't know specifically who it was. Yes. Yeah, so be. as soon as, as soon as she found out about the tumor, she called the hospital healthcare system here looking for a doctor to refer me to mm. within the system, a, a neurosurgeon, a neurologist, not a neurologist, I had already been to one, but somebody, you know, yeah. that like was brain tumor was their thing. Yeah, someone who could. And whoever was in our system at the time was like on a sabbatical or something and mm-hmm. not there. And there was this interim guy that was, you know, doing doing work in that vein, but he was not, he was not a full-time Right. Um, employee of the hospital so that that person was leaving town and so she, she got a recommendation from him though for me to go to St. Louis um, to Barnes Jewish Hospital which is was two and a half hours from where I live I think and so she did that she called in she got me set up with somebody who's like brain cancer is the only thing I do and mm-hmm. you know so then I, that same day, I drove to the hospital and was admitted via the emergency room because that's how the doctor, the neurosurgeon, wanted me to do it. Was just like go to the emergency room, check in, and tell them that you're here to see me. You yeah. know. So that started my nine-day hospitalization for this thing, and they did brain surgery on me just as for a biopsy they were trying to you know identify what they were dealing with they couldn't they'd done so many mris and everything and looked at it from a billion different angles they knew they couldn't cut any of it out Mm -hmm. because of where it was and how it it's it's a diffuse astrocytoma technically so it has like tendrils kind of and wraps there's no clearly defined border in throughout most of the tumor so they can't they can't just go in and start cutting things in there yeah so that's why I had the brain surgery it was to take a couple of cells send it off to foundation one which is like a genetic testing for tumors and cancers and stuff so they knew exactly what type they were dealing with and that kind of thing and then that nine-day stay was just surrounding like that process finding out what they were dealing with and then I was dismissed and after I had a very short time to recover from the surgery then they started in immediately with radiation and chemotherapy and so what was the timeline from the MRI to chemo radiation two and a half months three months something like that because it's like you were talking about how your reaction was like not what you would have expected your reaction to be. And so it mm-hmm. also must have been like 
happening pretty quick. I mean, I'm it, sure it always It did happen quickly, but. very fast, yeah. And, like, the surgery and stuff, like, there was this time in between the end of the surgery and before they were willing to start me on chemo and radiation because that's obviously you got to get well enough from the one thing right. to to endure yeah, the others the like acute injuries yeah so i'm i think i was in the hospital like the beginning of february and then i came home like mid-april so what mm. is that like six weeks or so yeah like so it's not it wasn't as long as i was thinking it yeah, was it probably was a it okay. felt like an eternity, but yeah, chaotic time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And especially, it's weird. Like, I, I'm sure it happens more than I think, but like cancer, there are so many more cancer stories, kind of in media and everything. But I think mm-hmm. it's like we still get the impression that people are surprised by the diagnosis, and partly like because it's been such a short time. Like, I'm not saying I think this actually happens. I'm saying the media makes it right. Look like the media makes it look like cancer is something that as soon as you get symptomatic, it's probably going to be caught because that's the kind of story that it is. And right. That's, that's not how our healthcare system works. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also a really, I think disconcerting thing to be like, wait, I thought if I was going to get a diagnosis, I should have gotten the diagnosis when I started asking questions. Right. Like, right. There's so much like, I just made a face because I don't know what word because I'm having a lying down day. But like, it's so the messaging and the reality are so conflicting. And I feel like that's such a difficult thing in addition to the actual processing and like, yeah, coping. You, you see a lot more when it comes to cancer, you see a lot more from media about either very good or very heartbreaking stories. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the majority of us with cancer are living in this chronic illness, you know, the the void, as you call it, you know, where we are our own kind of support system, but we're largely unrecognized by anyone who is not like a direct family member or has some kind of contact with, you know, how that is. Because I'm three years out and I'm not dead, but I'm not well, (laughs) you know, and I am never going to be healthy either. Like you hear about people who maybe get diagnosed with a cancer and they're in remission or there are no evidence of disease, you know, that's not going to happen for me because they can't get rid of what I've got without killing me or coming close to it, you know? So, and so, and so, you, and so you started a treatment, which cancer treatment is difficult. I feel like it ties mm-hmm. directly into what you're describing. So, yeah. So your first round of treatment, how, which had happened very quickly after everything else. And so you, had, you said you stopped working after you found out that it was a brain tumor at that point. So you, yes. Yeah. And if, if you were in the hospital for six weeks, I assume that you were at least not also at work at that time. Although... I know people do work remotely yeah. from the hospital. Don't want to well, I that. wasn't. As soon as I was diagnosed with the brain tumor, I was like, okay, I'm never coming in again. <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't like that, but I, what I was saying to myself, I'm not going in, I'm not forcing anything until I feel like I'm up to it. Yeah. And at that point I did think I would be back to work. Mm-hmm. 
I figured there would be at some point, I didn't know how long or how far out that, that I would end. It didn't happen. I didn't get better. I got better, but I didn't get well enough to do a job again. Kind so of what you had expect your previous baseline that you were looking at, had they at the beginning or like at this point, yeah. what kind of expectations were they giving you about what to expect from treatment? How to like, what kind of care you might need? Like, how are they kind of, when you get the diagnosis, what other information were you getting? Nothing. <laughs> I have a very rare kind of tumor and a very weird spot that they don't know a lot about. And I didn't at the time, and I kind of don't want to know, like, a time. I don't want a prognosis of, oh, you could live this many. I I don't care. Like, that doesn't, I've got whatever time I've got, and you telling me something isn't, is only going to make my, like, my depression over this and that kind of thing worse. Yeah. So I, I really wasn't given any kind of information like that, but I don't. I don't hold it against anybody. I, I didn't want it, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I also would, I mean, suspect kind of that, you know, they're guessing yeah. a lot of the time in a way that like maybe isn't going to make things easier to hear like an, a person who's removed from your life kind of hypothesizing as if there are no consequences to like guessing out loud. It's like, yeah, maybe I don't need to hear you guessing out loud if that's what you're mm-hmm. doing. Maybe that's like a private conversation for you to have with right. your brain doctor who likes to think about this. Yeah. Yeah. So, but so then so then treatment, you're like, OK, we're doing this and we're just mm-hmm. going to find out how it goes, basically. And it did go like the first there was a, a simultaneous chemo and radiation. The chemo was supposed to make the radiation work better. And it did. Like when that ended, I went back, you know, I have like for a while I had an MRI a month. Now I'm down to like every four months I have an MRI. But it did shrink it. And I got some like very welcome (laughs) symptom relief, Mm -hmm. you know, in certain areas. But then my brain fog is, you know, just from having pain and stuff like that, I had brain fog. But then, you know, you take chemo long term, you have your brain irradiated. It's not going to just take the tumor, right? So I have some to this day, even though that was 2017, you know, I'm coming up on, wow, I'm coming up on four years out from that. But I still don't, like I lose words, I lose train of thought you know and that will just always be I mean that is that is how things are now but I finished that they did shrink it and then afterwards they put me on what do they call it a a juvent or I don't know it's the second round of second round of higher dose chemo there was no radiation with it but I did another year of chemo which was a once a month once a month pill mine was okay yeah I was gonna ask about that how they were administering it. Yeah. 
high dose of chemo I had that I had been on at the low dose before I had this crazy reaction where I almost died (laughs) yeah it was really really bad I landed in the emergency room but I was back at home here in Illinois at that point so I went to the local emergency room where they were trying to you know kind of sort things out for me and figure out what was going on they were in contact with my doctors in St. Louis and the the final verdict on that was that I had some kind of eosinophilic reaction on the higher dose. I just couldn't tolerate it, so they took me off of that. And I went their like second line. It's not the one they prefer to use for patients, but I guess it's okay, <laughs> you know. So I got this. Chemo. Yeah, I got the second one, and I finished out that year on that with just standard chemo problems, not anything that concerning. Mm -hmm. So, and then I finished that chemo in 2018 and I haven't had any other cancer specific treatment since that time. Mm -hmm. And I haven't had any change in the tumor since it shrunk that one time. So it's still the same size as it was every time I'm going in for my MRI. Mm-hmm. So what I have, I have, and just, you know, just being completely honest with myself, like whatever I am experiencing right now is about as good as I'm going to get, you know, mm-hmm. they, they do think it's a slow growing tumor. So I don't know, maybe, maybe they'll have a cure by the, <laughs> you know, by the time it, it becomes a, like a dire circumstance for me, but mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's like now you, you kind of know it's there. It's obviously impacting you and the mm-hmm. the pace of change for it is like not something that you need to think about every single night basically. Like you're you're pretty stable. Yeah. Physically, which I realize is like probably it it probably is optimistic to describe health as stable in general and also probably like erases the emotional difficulty of like being sort of stable but still knowing that you're still built you know all of it yeah words yeah are great today for me <laughs> <laughs> that's that's every day like I just yeah I don't think anything of it when someone is like I can't <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh okay we were kind of saying so you were talking about getting you were talking about you finished all of the treatments and so you have sort of stabilized and growth has sort of stabilized and kind of like that's well that's where you've been for a couple years now it sounds like how so you you went from you were doing chemo and radiation together and then you did the next a year of chemo which you were just talking about after the reaction and then so how is the transition from like active treatment to kind of let's see how things are basically which is must be what that transition is like like the reassessment? It's been kind of weird because I thought I would get so much better than I did. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that those treatments weren't worth it. I mean, they definitely bought me time and whatever, but I did anticipate, you know, those two, those phases were over for me that I would start gradually improving. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm just, I'm at a flat baseline, you know, mm-hmm. with, you know, ups and downs. I mean, yeah. there is the, 
the occasional day where I'm like, oh, well, this isn't quite as sucky as yesterday, but I'm but then I'll have other times. Today. Yeah. Yeah. With consequences. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I always pay when I'm having a good day and because I feel up to it, I will always have at least a day, probably a week of just, I can't do anything. I'm going to. I'm going to have a lie down in bed day, you know, I go to bed at like six or seven o'clock at night, or I'm lying down on the couch by six or seven because I'm just finished. I am wiped out. You know, there's nothing left. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I never did get to go back to work. Um, I had disability insurance, which I had a very public fight with them. Doctor who never met me to say, you're in remission. <laughs> you can't be in remission when there's a tumor in your head, right? But so they cut off my benefits and I had that whole long fight. And that finally ended the with the attorney got my benefits reinstated for me. And so I'm finally at a point where the external stress of all of that, at least, isn't on top of me yeah. navigating my newly disabled life and you know yeah poverty and cancer and <laughs> you know so at least that's gone but that's where I am I you know I do have still this drive I was I don't know if I would call myself a type A but I was a very ambitious person you know and did a lot of things just because I wanted to test what my limits were and you know i still try to do that kind of thing from time to time but it's kind of a double-edged sword i think oh i'm so i'm so proud of myself for what i did but also i am paying for like a whole month for doing that thing and that is really depressing you know like the payoffs don't feel the same yeah 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 and how because because you just talked about the the disability insurance thing. How long, how long was that going on compared to how long since that been settled? Like, what's the ratio on? Do you know what I mean, time wise? Yeah. So the fight. Okay, I have two different kinds of disability insurance here in the states. We have social security disability insurance that if you work, you pay into that. It comes out of your taxes. You don't even think about it. So I, I get that and have got that since like day one people particularly who have diagnoses like depression or fibromyalgia or whatever because those aren't taken seriously by the system i guess you know one of the um high points of having brain cancer is that my my government disability insurance has never been in question Mm -hmm. it's not enough (laughs) you know like it's not it's not saving my husband and I from, you know, they approved it right away and they have never tried to take it away from me. The supplemental insurance that I purchased through my employer was, you know, as a private insurance company that they, they paid it for two years without much question. And I was really shocked at the end of the two year period when they were like, oh, you're fine now. We don't have to pay you anymore. And I had to go through two appeals processes where you basically, it's the most 
horrible thing to put somebody who's sick through, but you appeal to them, not an independent third party or whatever. You have to appeal to them to say, yeah, to say, hey, wait, I really am sick and deserve these benefits and they can do what they want. You have to get an attorney. I mean, Mm -hmm. you just, there's, there's no way. Um, And, and luckily I made just enough from that for it to be worth an attorney doing it on contingency Mm. so that like they, they would take a chunk out of those benefits after they won the case for me. I didn't have to pay up funds where that's not the case. They, they can't even get an attorney because they don't have their, they're impoverished by their medical condition and they can't pay up front and the attorneys will be like, well, you know, even if I win this for you, it's not going to be worth it to me to right. take on your case. So, so I was can't even right unless they can fundraise, you know, like go fund me enough to hire an attorney to to go after these people. Right. It's a really horrible, horrible system. But I did find an attorney. She was great. She helped me, you know, get through the process. And after a year, they reinstated my benefits because, I mean, clearly there was, there was no, none of my personal doctors that I was fine, that I could do, like they had, they had some doctors say, oh, she can, push and pull 30 pounds and walk for 30 minutes and I can't do any of that like not because I don't want to I physically can't do it and they were using that as a basis to deny my claim yeah and like you said is like it's one of the things that's so like makes me want to pull my hair out about this is how clearly it demonstrates that like it's not really about the documentation like because you mentioned this, but like so many things right. that are hard to document with some invisible illnesses when they're still medically invisible because everything starts out invisible. Like they can mm-hmm. be hard to document. Your doctors might not believe you, blah, blah, blah. But you're in this situation where like all of the documentation is on your side. The tumor is present. Yes. You're like, And they still tried to deny me. Yeah. The, like they don't, it yeah. really, it just really shows you that like the default assumption is that they're going to try to make it look like you're more Kate. I don't even know what word to use because I feel like every word is charged in this scenario, but yeah, like Mm -hmm. able to force yourself into production mode when in fact you are not able to do that and certainly not able to do that for more than probably a week or something. Yeah. One thing I kept saying during the process was like, if they won't, if they're doing this to me, with a brain cancer diagnosis that's labeled inoperable, excuse me, what are they putting these other people through who have literally anything else? Because if I can't get it, if I have brain cancer and I can't get people to be realistic about, you know, what I'm able to do, yeah, my God, exactly what are these yeah. other people enduring? Like if this is you what know, sympathy looks like, based yeah, on what yeah. you've been told to expect, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you, okay. So for a bunch of reasons, the, in this one instance, the stars aligned enough that you were able to find an attorney and you were able to appeal successfully. And so that has been resolved for about a year. Did you say? Yeah. When did I, my, 
benefits got reinstated in March. So I went from March of 2019, yeah, March of 2019 to March of 2020, I went without benefits because they were claiming I didn't qualify for them. Right, and you were actively fighting them for that year, yeah. And it took me that whole year of fighting, and I mean, like, fighting, fighting. I I went after them online. I, you know, I did everything that I could. Yeah, I I did everything I could within my power to do it first without an attorney because I couldn't find one initially. Yeah, Um, it must be hard. Yeah. Uh, Well, I had, I did have an attorney in the beginning who say, well, maybe there, because there were two appeals that I had to go through before I could sue them. Mm-hmm. He said, well, maybe you should just do the first one yourself and see what happens. And then, so I did that. It didn't work. Big surprise. So I went back to her and she changed the price on me oh, no. in that time. Yeah. And I was like, oh no, I am not playing this game. I have been <laughs> screwed by so many people. Yeah. I started searching again. And that's, you know, that's when I found this other person who who really did help. And like, I just want to say if there's somebody out there who is like, I need a recommendation. I don't know where to go. I, you know, I'm not going to broadcast that information, but I would definitely be willing to have a private conversation with somebody and say, Hey, here's what to look for. Here's where you could start with this person maybe and, and see where that goes. But because it was, a person who I live in Illinois, the attorney was in Tennessee. It was okay. all done long distance, which was super helpful for somebody who's disabled, but even more so now that we're in the middle of this pandemic, right? They did everything without me ever having to step foot in their office. So that is great. And yeah. so, okay. And so that it's, I mean, not to make light of like time like the world's timeline but so if you your benefits were resolved in march of 2020 then i'm going to go ahead and assume that you didn't then get to like take a deep breath of relief and just like start peacefully adjusting to your new situation oh right no so i still have at least 50 grand in medical debt that i just can't pay like this is helping me keep a roof over my head it is not and during that year where they weren't paying me you know i had to put so much stuff on the credit card or just deny or or like if it was a house issue just not fix it i mean Mm -hmm. there is so much extra additional you know hardship that comes along with that than just fighting those people yeah to get that reinstated and you know i'll probably never you know feel better or feel comfortable it's just that i am food secure and shelter secure right now and that feels really awesome (laughs) you know compared to where i was like a year ago yeah yeah no it must be both yeah like a really big adjustment and like a big improvement and a big reduction Mm -hmm. in one of the stress buckets right right and then the pandemic started also around that time so yeah how has that impacted Uh, your your experience we'll say yeah so I went to therapy for the first time during the pandemic definitely had an impact on like my emotional health and it's not because I'm trapped inside my house I've been in 
trapped I've been unable to drive for like five years and you know like all of that was not an adjustment for me but just being bombarded with how little people are concerned was totally messing with my mental health you know I was depressed like majorly depressed by the actions of other people you know the the stuff outside my control which your therapist will tell you you can only control what you can that doesn't help in this situation because what I can't control could kill me yeah. <laughs> you know so anyway I I am glad to see, you know, the, the news of the vaccine and whatever, but still disheartened by people who are like, oh, I'll be fine. <laughs> well, you know, good for you. <laughs> I'm glad you'll be fine. But I wish you would, you know, take like one little tiny step to help somebody else who might not be, you know. And I hate, like, I hate it on both sides because it like, I, I have also really struggled with everything that we get, like all the disdain that we get to see from people and how little they give a shit about adjusting anything. Like we're also recording this. I should say this because yeah. it won't be out for a while. We're recording this on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So it's been like really loud this week, I think. Although yeah. I'm sure it will continue to be really loud. But like the other thing that gets to me because because I have dysautonomia and like I'm on that side of chronic illness stuff I'm like so many of you are not going to be okay like I know what is coming for you and I wish like uh, there's like I know I think a lot of people feel like kind of versions of this of like (laughs) one like don't make you know disability into like a punishment or the worst possible outcome but on the other hand like your health is precious <laughs> take care of it i don't know it's yes. just, like it's painful yes. kind of in each of those directions in ways that like the the word for when pe- like when people are careless about something but in a f- the fancy word for carelessness that's fine i keep thinking debonair and that is definitely the wrong word <laughs> It's been an experience, that's for sure. Yeah. On the one hand, getting to like, there's so much exposure to how much people do not want to be inconvenienced to keep other people safe. And then also, so many people right. who think they're vulnerable to chronic illness, which they're not. It's like, yeah. All of that, I think, is what I was ranting about. Yeah. Yes. So that, okay. But then, so we were in your story, or cl- close to the present now, but so that kind of happened at the same time that that was happening. But as a person who's mostly at home, the pandemic kind of has like a weird effect, right? Like it's not that your daily life, mm-hmm. is, this is me too. I'm projecting right now. My, my life has yeah. not changed that much day yeah. to day, but it's affecting me a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's how, that's a good way to put it. I, I feel exactly the same way. And when people, when people complain, it's like I jump between empathy for them. Like, yeah, I know what this is like. I've been doing it for five years and didn't want to. I jump between that and, oh, well, welcome to, you know, welcome to my life. Like feeling kind of snarky about it, you know, because like there's a whole population out there that just deals with this all the time. There's no external like, pandemic that everyone gets to experience and then we don't get the empathy like back (laughs) you know like it's not reciprocated so yeah there's that too you know there's that struggle with I should really be a good person about this but then also 
I feel really petty right now. <laughs> yeah. So. Because it's, it's so specific. It's like, it's not like, oh, one, it's definitely not like, I'm glad that a bad thing has happened to anybody. But it's just like, right. it is so hard to listen to people complain about this problem as if they're the first ones to ever go through it. Like, right. Exactly. And, stuff. and it's like, okay, yeah. like, it is hard. We do have a lot of empathy for that. But like, mm-hmm. you're erasing us from your narratives that are off. Yes. Like, right. Yeah. And when this ends, you'll be back to not giving it a second thought and we'll still be here living this, you know. Yeah. Constantly, 24-7. So. Yeah, and it's going to be, I mean, I this is, the, I don't like to think about the future with the pandemic too much because I feel like it's even, I know we have some good vaccine news. I'm excited about that. But like, I try not to tell, like, make predictions because i know how oh yeah definitely like when you hear everything is teetering on a thread like we need some we need some kind of hope but at the same time hope and confidence are like worlds apart you know i'm not confident that we're getting through this unscathed i just at least have a little bit of hope that we you know and when i say we i mean me and my husband specifically because so many people have been right right you know and, and, like, I think about it in terms of this is actually a weird chronic illness analogy that I hadn't really thought about it, bef- that I hadn't really thought about before. But, like, with the vaccine, I'm excited that there's a vaccine coming, but, like, I have very little faith that the vaccine is going to bring our lives back to normal anytime soon. If it, like, That's true, too. Yeah. Like, I know there's a normal coming and Like, there will be a new normal. I believe that. Blah, blah, blah. Like, we don't have to have a whole philosophical conversation. But it's, like, mm-hmm. I think there's a line, too, of, like, people who have had their lives kind of turned upside down for health reasons and know that you can't just, you can't just like turn it right side up again. It doesn't just like go back. It goes to like, you settle differently. And I've been thinking, I guess I haven't been thinking about that on purpose, but I think I've been processing it in the same way of like major upheaval. It doesn't really get better, but you learn to live in it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. It makes perfect sense actually. You know, coming from our experiences of yeah. how this, you know, how our lives have kind of shaken out so far. Yeah. You know that a major trauma like this cannot be just fixed overnight. There's, yeah, like, even if they had cured me of cancer, <laughs> you know, if I would still be dealing with all of the things that led up to the diagnosis that were so hard on me. And you're not just going to get over that in a a night you know so yeah pandemic is the same way it's it's really you know we've lost people and we have traumatized you know certain groups way more than others you know like i that that's not something that we can just walk away from when the actual threat of the virus is over there's so much we still have to deal with so yeah it's like there's I mean, and as an illness show, I'm going to focus on one thing, but not because I think it's more important, but it's like, even just that the, like, healthcare workers are going, like, this is a generation defining event for healthcare workers. And I think it's probably, like, separate from how long COVID is going to define probably the healthcare for a long time. I think 
the experiences of all of these medical workers who, as much as on this show, we complain about medical workers a lot because <laughs> experiences of, like of chronic illness in healthcare are one thing. Acute emergency medical workers are doing a different thing and they are not yeah. doing the job that they signed up for. And it's going to... I think really affect healthcare for everyone even more than the lockdowns already have. And they yeah. have affected a lot. So now we're like out into speculation zone, but <laughs> yeah. this is what 2020 has been like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The entire year. I mean, essentially the entire year, but yeah, I mean, it feels like it. <laughs> mm. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to talk about? <laughs> not that nothing that's coming to mind yeah I you know i just always feel like the thing is is talking about it you know to yeah. to validate for myself to remind myself but also to let other people know that you know this this is a thing that happens to a whole lot of people and you know if you feel <laughs> if you feel like the world's against you it kind of is <laughs> you know you're not you're not making things up or over exaggerating there are some definite hurdles to cross and yeah. you know whether it's diagnosis or just living with you know illness yeah. um, there are real hurdles and how do you find this is actually you kind of talked about this a little bit earlier but since i haven't talked to that many people about cancer as like a primary conversation what have you found community-wise? So you mentioned that, like, the type of tumor that you have is pretty rare. Did you look for other people who had really similar experiences? Or were you looking for people who might relate? Like, how has that been for you, finding community in this kind of in-between space? I, I'm kind of a loner, like, just by design. And I didn't actively seek community, but I did just stumble into it you know through twitter yeah. um mostly and have you know have found community there i have n literally no in-person like cancer mm -hmm. connections my dad had cancer I, I know plenty of people who have had it but it's a different you know it's just a different thing for everybody and like my dad is no evidence of disease he's not living the same life right. after treatment that i am yeah. you know so while he gets a lot of what i went through he doesn't necessarily understand anything more than like just an intellectual understanding of what life is like now right and the you kind know? of day-to-day -day of living yeah yeah with a chronic symptomatic mm -hmm. experience yeah yeah because he was one of the what we would call you know a, a positive cancer story where things worked for him you know and, mm -hmm. and he got he got to a point where the the cancer I wouldn't you know there's there's still always that even for people that that are in remission or whatever you will hear them say there's still always that little thing like it's hanging out there it could come back it could you know so there's there's that and i don't want to dismiss that at all because that's a very mm -hmm. very serious thing for anybody to deal with yeah. but it's it is not the same kind of thing it's easier to put away for 24 hours while you go to you know whatever i was gonna say like a family gathering but <laughs> we're not doing that right now either so like, but you know what i'm saying is that for a minute because your body isn't yeah it's like it's not on 
if you're not thinking about it, your body isn't necessarily, some people's bodies aren't. I'm like, every generalization, we both know that we make, we're like, we know that it's not true for everybody. But there are some (laughs) people who get to live a more or less asymptomatic life after cancer treatment. But of course, that doesn't undo the experience of having lived with cancer and knowing. Serious it was. Yeah. Yeah. And also, it's not the same as cancer management, where cancer takes on a really more chronic. I mean, it is a chronic illness. It just isn't like they get put under different narrative umbrellas and I guess hospital departments. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's like for me, you know, part I've, I have a palliative care doctor and I go routinely to get treatment that is specifically cancer related. Like, you know, I take medicine for my fatigue and I, you know, those kind of things. It's like an ongoing deal that other people wouldn't necessarily have to endure if the cancer is quote unquote gone, mm-hmm. you know, like there's, so I'm, I'm constantly, it's weird. Cause <laughs> I feel like I identify very, very strongly with the chronic illness community, but also, and this is self-imposed, nobody in the chronic illness community has done this to me, but I also feel like because I have a very specific, very, I don't know what word I want to use here, because people mess around with it, um, I feel like I have a sort of privilege because of my diagnosis over people who either, one, don't have a diagnosis at all or have these kind of outlying diagnoses that nobody really understands well and that doctors don't even take very seriously you know i i feel like that maybe i don't belong (laughs) because i have such a specific such a very seriously taken disease Mm -hmm. and again i want to reiterate nobody in the chronic illness community has made me has said anything to me to make me feel that way i just you know we internalize all of these things coming at us and sometimes i just sit with that feeling like i don't deserve to be treated like (laughs) i don't know and then but then other people will be like oh well i shouldn't complain because you've got cancer and i'm like no 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 (laughs) we are all valid here (laughs) you know it's just you know that's how it is with with the with the ableism that comes with everything and we're all just sitting here processing that in like a million different ways you know and half the time doing it to ourselves not even realizing sorry if that was like a wild tangent but no no not at all because I think something that happens like a lot within at least like the kind of actively ill corner of the disability community, which is kind of chronic illness and a few other, whoever else maybe is in the like active, actively seeking care corner of disability is like, mm-hmm. it, there, are, there are a lot of like privilege axes, kind of like what you're talking about. Like diagnosis is a privilege or having a diagnosis that is usually uncontested is a privilege, but like, yeah. Within the context of the healthcare system, where anybody who is like reaching these kind of like privileged tiers is also going to be someone who's very sick, like, yeah, and I don't mean that they are sicker than anybody who has not reached them, but like, if you're not sick, you're not even a part of this conversation. So, yeah, it's like we get into these really difficult to untangle, like, 
I mean, this is when people start talking about the oppression Olympics, but I think we do it to ourselves too, like what you're talking about, where it's like, okay, well, I look around me and I see that the system is really hurting other people in a way that it either it didn't hurt me or it isn't hurting me anymore, which is like part of it, right? It's not even like you're saying like, oh, I've had a great medical experience. And so when I hear about these hard ones, I feel bad because I was treated so well. That's not even what you're saying. And I think like, we all get these narratives where we're like, well, it like at least I got this one basic measure of human <laughs> dignity in a system that is like right. literally trying to keep all of us in the workplace not complaining, and that's apparently its only function. Like exactly, exactly. So, it goes back to me being relieved when the doctor tells me I have a brain tumor. Yeah. It's all connected, you know, to that same, like, if we're not producing for somebody, not even just for ourselves, if we're not producing for someone else, then we are not, like, worthy of compassion or empathy or even just food, shelter. I mean, it's, it is that bad, you know? Yeah. And when you spend, like, I was saying I was healthy for, you know, 30 plus years before this happened when you spend 30 plus years steeped in that you I I didn't realize how I would like to think that I wouldn't have been that way but I didn't know any different so right I look back and I think oh my gosh I was kind of a horrible person like I had no concept of there's so much I didn't know how bad things could be yeah yeah yeah, or where all the cracks were, because why would you? But it's like, I think that's like a thing in disability and chronic illness and disability communities. As mm-hmm. people, like as we all become aware of all of the possible cracks to fall through, you like realize which ones, either which ones don't impact you or which ones don't impact you anymore. And you're like, I'm so grateful that I'm not in that crack. But like, yeah, that's what's so much. Yeah. And these relative privileges are very real. Like, I know that. I Mm -hmm. have many of them. But, like, they're so cursed at the same time, I guess, is the point that I really wanted to make. They're these weird cursed privileges of a busted system. Yeah. Yeah. And they impact us, I think. That was also where I wanted to go. And they, they, this is what you were talking about, but they, like, impact community relationships, intra and inter-community relationships in patients of like how patients perceive each other and how patients see other kind of communities represented in the media or perceive that they are treated by healthcare or whatever like there's all of this noise around what different people are experiencing sometimes with disability and chronic illness is that kind of does that line up with it's okay if you Mm -hmm. also don't remember but that's how i'm hearing it or that's that's what it makes me think of yeah yeah (sighs) oh brains (laughs) but that made sense yeah it's I feel like it's interesting because I like I think when I thought that I was a healthy person which I wasn't I like it seemed like there were really kind of impermeable diagnostic groups like it would be really obvious like people who have this and people who have this and people who have this and that they would all be like really similar or have a lot in common or whatever and I remember in 
I guess 2017 was when I stopped working. So around that time and I was undiagnosed and I was like, okay, cool. Like, who do I talk about this with? That is not clear to me at all. <laughs> right. And it was like, because people who are diagnosed must like know and just talk to each other about that. And now I realize that that's like a little bit true, but that's not really what it's like either. Like diagnostic labels don't always tell you who you're going to have the most in common with. Right. Which was a surprise to me, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I, you know, going back to the fibromyalgia thing, it's not that I didn't qualify for fibromyalgia. I absolutely do. Um, there were just things that were not being considered in with all those symptoms. But so, like, I kind of feel like people with fibromyalgia are like my people. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I identify with them with this with the struggle of not being taken seriously for whatever it is like you know i remember a couple of of years ago you know back when i was first diagnosed and somebody saying well that's just a diagnosis that doctors give when they don't know what you've got yes but <laughs> you know not always like I don't know. It's just so dismissive for you to say that to somebody, you know, it's so, and it's so hurtful. And I, and I, that was another thing I struggled with in like kind of shedding the fibromyalgia diagnosis is that I didn't want to harm people who like that was a legitimate diagnosis for them. And I don't want everybody who gets diagnosed with fibromyalgia to automatically go, oh my God, what if I have a brain tumor? Because my circumstances are like not, not normal, you yeah, know? Um, yeah. And I think like one thing that gets lost. So I try to balance between, you know, fibromyalgia is real, take it seriously. You go ahead. No, I was also going to just talk about fibro. Yeah, because I think one thing that gets lost about it is it's like it describes a specific symptom presentation. And it also as it shouldn't be given as a diagnosis unless it's like it's a diagnosis of exclusion. And so the problem is that most di yeah. most doctors aren't doing the exclusion that they should be doing. And so really right. fairly often it turns out to be a misdiagnosis because somebody who's been diagnosed with fibro eventually gets enough information to have like a more comprehensive diagnosis for their situation. So if they're seronegative, yeah. if they're like preclinical or whatever, and then it's mm -hmm. like, so then we have this whole, like many people who have the symptom pattern, but it like have a different underlying cause or a known underlying cause. Yeah. And then there's almost certainly people who are in this category who maybe share a cause that hasn't been discovered yet. And it's like all of these people hanging out under the same umbrella and the like outside population doesn't have any of the nuance to know why this would happen. Right. Yeah. Because they go to the doctor, they get treated and they come home and they feel better, you know, and I'm not knocking that. That's the experience you have, you know, until you have a different one, you can't know what that's like but you know, that was me when I was younger I would I would get something I would feel really bad I'd go to the doctor and you know outside of like a week or you know a month at the most I would be back to what I would call normal yeah and feeling good helps. yeah 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 and so and, and it helps until it doesn't and then <laughs> once it doesn't that's when your eyes are really opened to the failings that are there and and I don't 
I don't think the solution is for everyone to get sick, obviously, but you know, listen to us. <laughs> there is no reason to to not believe someone when they tell you they they went through X, Y, and Z. You know, I, yeah. I think that's the the most frustrating part of being in the system is just the disbelief from other people because you know I haven't been through it. You know, would you tell me that you don't think cancer exists because you've never been diagnosed? Probably not. Right. <laughs> because again, we're going back to the status of cancer having been elevated to this like big scary thing and whatever. But people, uh, by and large, they don't have any qualms about, you know, dismissing other things like fibro. You know, those mm-hmm. we can't leave out the element that, you know, if you're not. If you're not a white guy walking into the doctor with a complaint, chances are there's a whole lot of prejudice going behind how you're being treated. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we could we could talk for like five hours on that alone. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't want to derail so, yeah. everything, but it's very yeah. present. Yeah. In all of this. Yeah. yeah. And I don't feel like as a white woman, I don't feel like I should be the one to have that conversation anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, because there's so much more that we just got to listen to people. Why are we not listening to people who tell us when something happens, it happens? Why are we so disbelieving of everything? I don't know. (laughs) Like waxing (laughs) philosophical, but. Yeah. Well, it's been a very, like, it's, it's a, it's a constant question for us in the chronic illness sphere because we've been running up against it for most of us for as long as we've been sick but it's like a question of 2022 I mean and it's a question for many marginalized communities which is also what you're saying is that especially white women with chronic illness are not the only marginalized community and certainly not the most oppressed however a lot of these kinds of themes are coming up for a lot of people I think just the way that 2020 has been has been like oh god like one of the tools of oppression, basically, like gaslighting is a tool of oppression. And there's a lot of examples that we can see yeah. where it's being used right now in like big current events. So I don't know when this episode will come out exactly, but I suspect it will still be relevant, even if it's a month out from now or something. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I know it's a lot of energy and it's always a lot of energy to re- revisit all of the like medical crap. But I really appreciate getting that gift of energy, basically. Oh, you are so welcome. I mean, I'm so appreciative appreciative of, you know, like the community that you have on Twitter. I mean, it just floors me. Like I'm learning something constantly because people are willing to share, you know, and I want to be able to, I feel like just talking about stuff helps, you know, yeah. and you don't always know who it helps, but it helps, so... And especially on Twitter, and I mean this in, like, a nice way, you don't always know who's reading. Like, there are so many people, especially people who are chronically ill slash mentally ill slash neurodivergent who are like, I don't have words right now. And getting to read other people's word exchanges, like, this is me too and my brain is out. It's just so nice to get to, like, see other people having a conversation that you can't have in that moment but, Mm -hmm. like, would really like to have, kind of. Yeah. It's a good space. Despite all yeah, the crap absolutely of Twitter. Yeah, well, that yeah. is nice too. <laughs> I like it. Thank you. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening to episode 72 of No End in Sight. You can find Emily on Twitter at Emily Cease. Cease is spelled S-E-U-S-S. You can find me on Twitter at FibroFuckBoy, and if you want to support me directly and are in a position to, I have a Patreon where I post my poetry and other artistic endeavors at patreon.com darkmagenta. You can find Brienne on Twitter and Instagram at BenSB, and you can find many more conversations about chronic illness on Twitter at RTs from the Void. And don't forget, you can sign up to support the show over at patreon.com slash noendinsight. Or if you want to support the show but don't have a few bucks to spare, we'd be just as grateful if you left a podcast review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Thanks for listening.